Hello and welcome. We are the Ladies of Strange. I'm Ashley. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Rebecca. Thank you for joining us each week as we discuss the history, mystery, and theory of all things questionable, odd, and eerie. Happy March bonus, bitches. (gasps) Woo woo. Happy March bonus. You guys want a fun fact? Oh, yes. So, little peek behind the curtain. We talked on voice for like 30 minutes before hitting record because we haven't seen each other because we were waiting to get vaccinated. And lo and behold, as soon as we start recording, Gustafer decides to take <laughs> residence in my lap. I'm here. He's just, he's the honorary fourth host. He is. <laughs> but yeah, welcome back to a bonus episode, guys. Well, sort of bonus. It's more of a grab bag of all your favorite co-hosts. Yeah. I thought you were going to say a grab bag of all your favorite things. And I would just like to point out that the last bonus and this bonus are not my favorite things. Oh, I didn't think about the fact well, that we are doing this to you twice. Yeah, what I was did. last bonus? Haunting. Haunted stuff. Oh, that's fine. Scared Tiffany makes for great audio. Ew. Ew. <laughs> Word. <laughs> it's it's fine. fine. So our topic this week is the ocean. Ocean. The ocean. So would you guys like a quick fact before we roll into the three stories that are ocean related? Yes. I feel like I'm not going to want to know this information. Did you know the Mariana Trench is so <laughs> deep that if you stuck <laughs> Mount Everest... <laughs> what? Stop it. Am I... <laughs> okay. Um, this sounds like a good segue. Ashley, what's your story? <laughs> Okay, so I couldn't find a story specifically that I wanted to cover because the ones that I found that I wanted to cover, I want to cover in full depth. (laughs) Depth. (laughs) Those have been put on to continue uh, torturing Tiffany throughout the year. They've been put on my schedule. Thanks. So I'm covering some uh, ocean factoids. I'm doing random ramblings with Ashley on the ocean. Oh, yay. Hate it. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. So this entire episode is solely to disturb uh-huh. Tiffany. I am here for it. And I hate all of I you. I did try and throw in a couple that aren't like terrifying. No, I don't like the way you said that. But, <laughs> you know, I don't know what's going to freak you out. So did you know that the sun is what actually makes the ocean appear blue? Yes, I did know that. That makes sense. Isn't it reflective or reflecting the atmosphere or mm, something? Something. <laughs> Much science, such wow. And this is a quote from readersdigest.com because it is science. One of the most (laughs) indelible features of the ocean is the deep blue waters that continually churn, roll, and come in waves. The color is the result of the sun's red and orange wavelengths being absorbed by the surface and its blue wavelengths penetrating deeper, giving way to a blue tint. Wow. That's fascinating. Wow. Why isn't water in a glass blue when you're sitting outside? Because there aren't enough molecules to absorb the light. Oh, huh. that I did not know. Science. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your Rebecca impersonation? Uh-huh. <laughs> this whole section is going to be a Rebecca impersonation. Perfect. Science and random facts. Here we go. There are 20 million tons of untouchable gold in the ocean. Ugh. Untouchable gold. Mm-hmm. How do they know that? Because it is broken out into the actual water. So if you're hoping to find a fortune, don't expect the ocean to be your gold mine. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you might be able to find a shipwreck, but you won't be able to collect much of the 20 million tons of gold that's estimated to exist in the water. That's because it's so diluted, it's measured in parts per trillion. Oh, God. One liter of seawater may net you a 13 billionth of a gram of gold. Okay, think about this. Oh, gross. Um, <laughs> one yes, liter. Think about how much water is in the ocean. Go on. Blah. One liter gives you a 13th billion and there are 20, how many? Uh, 20, <laughs> 20 million, million tons. tons of gold. <gasps> <gasps> So, also, there are probably billions of dollars worth of treasure deep in the ocean because of the shipwrecks and the other incidences that have caused things to fall, you know, end up in the ocean, whether it's like shipwreck or plane going down or something being washed on Or on an shore, old woman telling a story. Or an old lady tossing it into the ocean at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, Brittany. I went down and got it for you. Oh, you shouldn't have. What? It's from Britney Spears' song. Oops, I did it again. Oh. I'll teach um, you culture later. We'll teach you. I'll teach you science. Tiffany will teach you culture. You'll be fine. (laughs) Culture, sure. You're screwed. (laughs) So on top of the multiple ways that things can end up in the ocean, it's impossible to know exactly how much treasure, quote unquote, could be lurking in the ocean. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration thinks a million sunken ships could potentially lurk in the dark. A million? And that the value of unrecovered treasures, it could be upwards of $60 billion. Oh, a million Um, ships. And in case, again, you're hoping you can just, you know, rent a scuba tank and go find yourself some treasure, the government or private properties that own the land usually make legal claims to the funds. So even if you find a treasure because there's no way to go back and know exactly who it actually belongs to, it usually just goes back to the government. There was a gentleman who found... So he found a huge emerald that was estimated to be about $450 million What in value. And because he found this, it was in the Florida Keys. You know, as soon as it was discovered, it took off and media attention got it. And the government basically came and found him and said, we can't officially take it from you, but you cannot sell this. You can't, I remember, can't remember the exact verbiage that they used but until we know exactly who this belongs to and try and trace it back you can't sell anything and because he thought that this was going to be the end all be all and the cure for all of his issues that he was having in life he actually ended up completing suicide in 2013 oh Oh, god because he was holding on to this thing that he thought was going to be completely life-altering and couldn't yeah cash in on it because the government said no oh my god so how do they go about deciding who takes ownership? Because I know like in the Florida Keys, that's one thing that's United States prop or area. But like, what if you're out in, um, what's it called when it's like open water that nobody claims? Oh, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember the term. Oh. But yeah, like there's no like legal owner so like that's why you can commit crimes out there and nobody international waters thank you what if you find something out in international waters is it like you bring it into the united states to try and sell it it becomes their property so is that does that have to do with owning 
that area of water no it's the ownership of who it should belong to so the issue that they have with some of the cases that i looked into where people have found treasures is you know obviously you have the speculation that most of the time those treasures were either stolen from royalty Uh, or belonged to royalty and were being transported for whatever reason, either they had sold it, they were moving, reload, you know, whatever the case is. So they basically hold that law of just because it got lost doesn't mean that it doesn't still belong to someone. So no finders keepers. No. <laughs> For some reason with oceanic treasure, finders keepers rule doesn't apply. Plus a lot of it is historical too, because, you know, they can trace it back if it's coins or whatever, they can trace it back and that might lead to information on like a missing ship or a missing person or something along those lines. Huh. So most of the time, if you find any treasure in the ocean, you're going to have to turn it into somebody or just be really good secret keeper. Right. I would not be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Um. So next, Earth's biggest waterfall is in the Atlantic Ocean. Ooh, please tell me more. The Denmark Strait, which is a waterfall below the Atlantic Ocean, is the equivalent of 2,000 of the world's most notable waterfalls. 2,000? So if you take 2,000 of what you imagine to be the world's greatest waterfalls, combine them, that gives you the Denmark Strait. (gasps) From top to bottom, it is 11,500 feet down. Uh, Can we stop? I love it. Um, I hate so it. obviously this is underwater. So technically it's not a waterfall by the definition sense, but the cold water on the eastern side of the strait is more dense than the warm waters coming from the west. When the waters mix, the colder water sinks and it creates like a waterfall effect. That's fun. Ew. We have different definitions of fun. fun. I'm very proud of Ashley right now. So Earth's most remote place is in the South Pacific. Known as Point Nemo, it is roughly 1,000 miles away from any coast of the three neighboring islands. It's so remote that at times astronauts are closer to it than any other occupants on dry land. That's awesome. Also, also, if Tiffany pisses me off, no, I am now threatening two point Nemo. Yeah, I'm going to send her there. Oh, I don't like this. <laughs> Ew, the ocean big, y'all. Uh. Did you know that tsunami waves can reach up to a hundred feet tall? At least that's the largest that's been recorded. See, that's the key word: largest that's been recorded. Why? Why do we need to talk about that? We could stop that right now. So a in 1958, an earthquake and landslide in Alaska generated a tsunami wave 100 feet high. It destroyed everything inland for 1,700 feet, which is the largest recorded natural disaster in history. Aquatic natural disaster, excuse me. But the biggest waves are under the water. Yay! They're called internal waves, and the wave walls have been found up to three miles below the surface. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) The waves are part of water layers with different densities and can reach heights of 800 feet before collapsing. That's cool. I'm really uncomfortable, you guys. (laughs) Well, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. It's fine. So did you know that sound can travel to the deepest explored areas of the ocean? Yes, we have so many unexplained noises. Tiffany, you should look up the bloop. 
The bloop. When you have a chance. The, is weird. The bloop. The bloop. <laughs> I started to look into it, but I found all of these and I was like, I can't choose. So researchers once lowered an underwater microphone, which is called a hydrophone, to the bottom of the Mariana, Mariana Trench, which put a pin in that, to see what sounds, if any, it might pick up. Scientists were able to discover sounds from earthquakes, passing whales, and other unexplainable ambient noises. Why is unexplainable ambient so foreboding? <laughs> Whale. Whale? It would be explain. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. Mm-mm. I like the Welsh, but not that. It could potentially be explained, but the Mariana Trench is considered to be the deepest part of the world's ocean and the deepest point on Earth. <laughs> the... Inside the trench, there's a valley known as Challenger Deep that extends roughly seven miles. Ooh. What? Or 36,070 feet. Just to put that in perspective, Tiffany, do you know what the largest mountain in the world is? Uh, Mount Everest? Yes. Do you know how tall Mount Everest is? Really freaking tall, which means this is 29,000 feet. I don't like it. So that means that all of Mount Everest could fit inside of this trench and still have about two miles of wiggle room. (laughs) Holy crap. Stop. (laughs) Do you... Oh, can you you imagine what's living down? (laughs) Ugh. I can. I ran into a lot of pictures while doing research. Uh Uh-huh. I don't like this. So up until recently, crews haven't been able to go any further than 35,797 feet, which was a record set by two oceanographers in 1960. Wow. That's... Could you imagine how bad your ears would pop? I think that's (laughs) the least of their worries, (laughs) Tiffany. In 2012, James Cameron... The, yeah, the famous film direct filmmaker explored roughly the same depth on a solo mission. <gasps> no, that bothered me, and the ocean doesn't even bother me that much. But being alone in a scuba—I guess it's not technically—it's a sub. It is a submarine, but it has a special name to go that deep. Um, but then in 2019, Victor Veskov made history by becoming the first person to so far reach the deepest part of the ocean at 36,070 feet. So that deep, the pressure from the water is approximately eight tons per square inch. That's a lot. Why? Why would you do that? How does anything survive? Physics, that's how. Not much does. I will send you a link to the article that I found a lot of information. And I think in 2012 was the first picture that they were able to get. I don't remember the details. It was past a certain depth. The first picture of a living creature. And it's just a little fish. It's not anything too terrifying, Tiffany. Just It's okay. It's a fish. And it was, I want to say at like 25,000 feet or something like that. So, but it wasn't doing great. <laughs> so for the record listeners, longtime listeners will know, new time might not but we judge how uncomfortable Tiffany is by how much she folds in on herself. And one of the downsides of recording remotely is we don't get to watch that happen. So Tiffany, Aww. how folded into yourself are you right now? My camera is turning on for you ladies. Oh, sh- she's a ball. Oh, yep. I'm a ball. Knees for boobs. <laughs> Knees for boobs. <laughs> I have white knuckled my legs right now. <laughs> she's very pale. <laughs> 
And like when I'm not talking, my head is down like this. <laughs> I turn into a turtle. It's bad. Um. Well, just, you know, putting it out there. Like I said, taking a picture of the first fish. Just what? 2012. God, I was about to say. Well, no. That would be right. Nine years ago. So as we know, the size of the ocean and water pressure kind of limit our exploration of the ocean. A little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's concluded that we've only identified about one third of potential marine life. It's believed that most of these creatures are smaller organisms, uh, but it is likely that there's some larger ones that have yet to been discovered that are either endangered or just so well hidden that we haven't seen them. But we're making progress. An average of 2,000 new species (laughs) are discovered each year. Wow. Jesus. So stay tuned. You never know (laughs) what you'll find. I mean, we we might find Cthulhu eventually, in which case... 2020 and 2021 would be explained. But I think that Cthulhu would have already made himself, themselves. I don't know what Cthulhu Nah, they're like, you guys fucked up enough. I'm going to nap for another hundred years. (laughs) I'm going to sit back here for a minute. Y'all got this. I'm going to (laughs) wait. So that's my very brief, let's see if I can make Tiffany uncomfortable factoids of the ocean. You did a great job. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Stay tuned. There's more coming. I don't like that. How about we not do that? Okay. (laughs) Can I go next? Do it. We'll end on... Tiffany said hers wasn't too scary. So yeah, we'll do it. And then we'll end on I know. We'll get the scary stuff done. And then Tiffany can like bring herself back to the nice little world she has in her head before she goes to bed. Start unfolding herself. Yeah. Please. So what is the biggest ocean creature y'all have ever heard of? Oh, God damn it. Can we not do that? The biggest <gasps> I've ever heard of. Yeah. It would be... Megalodon? Yeah. Yep. So the Megalodon lived approximately 23 to 3.6 million years ago during the early Miocene to the Pliocene eras. Not good eras. <laughs> not good, good eras. Good eras. Um, see, for some reason, that scares me. Not even, not necessarily scares me, but gives me that kind of uh-oh feeling in my tummy more than the ocean does. The fact that they're like so far away from us. Yeah. yeah. So the basic TLDR of the Megalodons is there's a lot we don't know. And because there's a lot we don't know, it means scientists get to speculate wildly about what they actually looked like and where they actually lived. So this section is going to be a a lot of halter-skelter facts that Rebecca found, but all of them were chosen specifically to make Tiffany uncomfortable. So let's continue. So it's a giant-ass shark. The genus of which is still strongly debated, while it regarded as one of the largest and most powerful predators to have ever lived, the megalodon is known from fragmentary remains, meaning that most of what we know about this animal came from either teeth or vertebrae. So we don't know a whole lot by default. But reports of this surface as early as the Renaissance, about 14th to 17th century, if you're not familiar when the Renaissance is. But the interesting thing about these early accounts is a lot of them thought these fossilized teeth were like the tongues of dragons or giant snakes. 
Neat. Ooh, that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, but it wasn't. It was a giant shark. That's not as cool. Yeah, it was eventually corrected by 1667 by Danish naturalist Nicholas Steno, who recognized the teeth looked like shark teeth and not like a snake tongue. <laughs> you don't <laughs> say. Swiss naturalist Louis Agassiz gave the shark its initial scientific name, which was Carcharodon megalodon in 1843. So, Megalodon comes from ancient Greek, which is broken up in two words called megas, which is big and mighty, and otis, which is tooth. So Megalodon basically means big and mighty tooth. Hey, now. There's worse things That's to be accurate. known for. So while Megalodon is the informal name for the shark, it is also often informally dubbed the giant white shark, the megatooth shark, and the big tooth shark, or just the Meg. The Meg. The Meg. I believe there's a movie about that recently. I was about to say. Actually, shouldn't we make Tiffany watch that with us? Oh, yeah. No. 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 <laughs> Hell no. Let's not do that. When we're reunited, we'll uh, have our major throwdown with all the foods that we've been talking about wanting to go get, but haven't yep. done yet, and watch the Meg. There we go. I will cry a lot, and you guys will hate it. I will cuddle Rebecca to no end. Okay. These eras of prehistoric living, as far as how they're characterized go, I can't pronounce. I'm not going to try. But they date as far back as 28 million years. Uh-huh. And there is some disagreement. There's disagreement from like the earliest ones all the way up to the most recent ones. But the general consensus I found was that it's not going to be younger than 2.6 million years. Don't like that. I'm aware that's okay. the whole point of this research. I hate you. Continue. So there's a <laughs> lot of debate as far as where the Megalodon started, what they evolved into, or what influenced them. But the general consensus is they kind of look like giant ass white sharks. I don't like it at all. Yeah. But again, due to f- fragmentary m- remains, there have been many, many contradictory size estimates for the Megalodons. Ooh, tell me the smallest. I'm going to tell you a few of them. <laughs> don't you don't, fret. Don't worry. We'll talk about the different ways size has been estimated because I found it fascinating. I'm sure you did. <laughs> so... Like I said before, the Megalodon is believed to be related to the great white shark, which for this specific instance, people have used the size proportions of the great white shark to guesstimate the size of the Megalodon using length length estimates extrapolated from 544 teeth found throughout geological time and geography, including adults and juveniles. A 2015 study estimated an average length of 34 feet. In comparison, the maximum recorded size of a great white shark is 20 feet. (laughs) And the whale shark, which is the largest living fish, is 62 feet. It makes me feel a little better that it's not as big as a whale shark. Yeah. We'll get there. So mature male megalodons may have had a body mass from 12.6 to 33.9 metric tons, whereas mature females may have been between 27.4 to 59.4. Oh so my the God. females they were, were a bigger? lot bigger. I'm not overweight. I'm a megalodon. There you go. Oh my God. <laughs> also, they, it is believed that they can swim up to 11 miles per hour. What would they eat everything yeah but that's I from mean, like whales to big fish to other sharks tons. to t- 
turtles, they ate everything. So its large size may have been due to climatic factors and the abundance of large prey items. And it may have also been influenced by the evolution of how their biological systems work because it's believed like other sharks that they are ectotherms meaning that they don't generate heat they have to get heat from other places i know there are other things out there like that but that's weird yeah like lizards and you and you tiffany you live with a heater i do live with a heater and i need constant contact maybe i am like like a megalodon no, no, no. But uh, maybe I get my heat from others because I have to be cuddled constantly. Having a child's good for that. So one interesting thing I found was in 2020, it was suggested that l- the large size was due to intraterrene cannibalism. I know I pronounced that wrong. Please don't at me. Where the larger fetus eats the smaller fetuses, resulting in progressively larger and larger fetuses, requiring the mother to attain an even greater size as well as color caloric requirements which would have promoted endothermy males would have needed to keep up with the female size in order to still effectively copulate so basically because the <laughs> rebecca so said copulate because the fetuses were eating each other that's why the female size got to be as big as they estimated it to be and even though the males didn't get quite as big they guessed that's why they still got pretty big is there any other species that does that not that i know of I mean, there there would have to be if there was a term for it, think. right? Well, I, it's probably there's probably cases where it has happened, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily such regular occurrence that the species has evolved. Yeah. around it. That's okay. Evolution is fake news. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, join our seven day plan to learn how evolution is fake news. So, talking about spiritualism. Moving on from the megalodon. Well, not from. I'm still talking about (laughs) estimates. So the largest tooth that I could find record of was 7.25 inches long. For a tooth? Yeah. And it's owned by Gordon Hubble in Gainesville, Florida. So obviously, since they started discovering fossils, they've been trying to reconstruct what this thing actually looked like. The first reconstruction was done in 1909 by Bashford Dean, and it is displayed at the American Museum of Natural History. It's hypothesized that the megalodon could have been 98 feet in length, but it's believed that Dean overestimated the size of the cartilage on both the jaws, causing it to be too tall, thus not making the length accurate. Hmm. Good, because that is far too long. Another fun analysis done was in 1973 by John E. Randall, who is an ichthyologist who used the enamel height of the tooth to, you know, look proportionately how the animal laid out and came up with 43 feet. In 1996, shark researchers Michael D. Gottfried, Leonard Compagno and S. Curtis Bowman propose a linear relationship between the shark's total length and the height of the largest upper anterior tooth, landing at a 67-foot total length. Mm-mm. So basically, biologists, scientists, etc., went to town guesstimating what the possible length is. And my conclusion to this is, it's all over the damn place. I would like to take a guess and say it's very tiny and that makes it, me feel it's much not. better. It's at least 30 plus feet. And part Just of the like, reason okay. that they haven't been able to discover it yet is because they lived in the ocean. And depending on what part of the ocean that they lived in and how deep the waters were, once you hit a certain point, uh, certain 
things, organisms and chemistries don't happen, don't exist. And it can basically suck the calcium out of bones and just turn it into dust. That I didn't know. That makes sense why they're mostly mm-hmm. cartilage. So that could be a portion of it. Well, and cartilage would wear away after a while, it, right? It would, but I don't know enough about cartilage or bones to make a coherent statement on this. But I have a feeling deep sea gigantism plays into this. Don't like that <laughs> term. Hey, <laughs> do. You can you can hear Tiffany's face scrunched up in uncomfortable. <laughs> So while not a whole lot is known about the megalodons, a lot of teeth have been discovered along with a few complete sets, which again, if you don't know what it looks like, I don't know how you know if it's a complete set because like every other shark on the planet, the megalodons had multiple rows of teeth ready to go to replace the ones that fell out. Probably going off just like, you know, a shark on average, one set of teeth is this many. So they're probably just kind of like piecing it together, assuming that they would have a... Exactly. But they're guesstimating that it had over 250 teeth spanning five rows, which I'm not sure how they guesstimated that, but that's terrifying to think about. I don't like teeth. Yeah, don't say... And that large (laughs) megalodon individuals had jaws spanning roughly 6.6 feet across. That's taller than my husband. There's a obviously fake megalodon jaw at at the Children's Museum up here. And I can easily stand in it. There's one at the Fernbank too. Is it the Fernbank or the Telus Museum? One of the two of them. Telus. Telus. Yes. I don't like it. That whole area that has that when you go walking through the dinosaur. Yeah. Oh, they're so big. (gasps) So speaking of big (laughs) things, would you like to know what sort of bite force this thing could have possibly had? Uh Uh-huh. In 2008, a team of scientists led by S. Rowe conducted an experiment to determine the bite force of the great white shark. And then they isometrically scaled the results for its maximum size and the conservative minimum and maximum body mass of the megalodon, which placed the bite force between 24,395 pounds to 40,960. For comparison, the great white has about 4,095 pounds force in their bite. (laughs) So the megalodon was a little, a lot, much more forceful. (laughs) I don't like any of this. Just FYI. I picked the next bonus topic. Fair. Hey, speaking of topics, guess what came up again? Coprolites. Oh, God, what? Hey, megalodon poops. Yeah, there are coprolites discovered that I can't talk. Fuck. It's we fine. found coprolites. We believe they came from megalodons. But they think belong. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, uh, hmm. so they are spiral shaped, indicating that the shark may have had a spiral valve. Yes, I left that in for Tiffany. A corkscrew shaped portion of the lower intestine, similar to extant lamniform sharks. Nope, don't ask me what that means. The specific coprolite that I looked at was about 5.5 inches. So, hold on. Correct me if I'm wrong, but copper lights are like when they poop and then the poop is covered and then it turns into a fossil. And But if they have a spiral, what did you say, shaft, valve, <laughs> whatever, it all comes out of just like a single hole. So would it be spiral when it came out? Because the exit point is the same. But if it's spiraled the whole way, it's kind of like whenever you get a, a spiral potato. It all comes out of one spot, but it's still okay, spiraled. Okay, so the, the best way I can think about this is... So, like, when your poop comes out, 
It's not just like squeezing toothpaste from a tube, although sometimes it is. A lot of times it's preformed and kind of hard, which is kind of what I'm attributing this to. Like the way the large intestine is situated in the megalodon forms the poop before it's ejected out. Ejected from the rectum. Yeah. So they're able to determine some things. Granted, I'm not sure how they determine it's from a megalodon, but they do have a good idea of what the lower intestine looked like. Anyway, I left that in solely because we talked about coprolites before. Okay, so megalodon fossils have been found, like, they're not found in one specific place. They're just kind of found scattered all over, but they're most commonly found in subtropical to temperate latitudes. But they also tend to be larger in the southern hemisphere than the northern hemisphere. Why? I don't know. I don't know why they're larger in the southern hemisphere. This is also like over 2.6 million years um, ago. I don't like it. Yeah, that's why I'm talking about it. So fossils indicate that the megalodons preyed upon many different types of species, such as dolphins, whales, sperm whales, bowhead whales, and other words that I can't pronounce because I don't know what they are. Nailed it. Uh, various excavations have revealed megalodon teeth lying close to chewed remains of whales and sometimes in direct association with them like stuck in the bones yeah. still. And a recurring thing I found is that when something's super big, sperm whales almost always come up. This fucker ate sperm whales. Sperm whales were around 2.6 million years ago. Far as I can tell, yes. It makes me hate them even more. Or at least a cousin. Well, we're also not sure when slash if the last megalodon existed. True. They could still exist. Ah, mm-mm, nope. We're done with that. Thanks, though. I mean... This is a great time to bring up that their expected lifespan is to be about 88 to 100 years. Yeah, no. Okay, Megalodon, get it. Can we not? And when Megalodons are born, they're about 11 feet long. Could you... uh, uh. No baby Megalodon, so cute. Baby my ass. So because of how I organized my notes, that is the end of the discombobulated facts Rebecca has about Megalodons that she acquired solely to bother Tiffany. Cool, cool. I love them so much. And I also want a baby Megalodon. No, I don't like that. It would eat your babies, animals and child, and maybe even your husband. Maybe when it was like a year old, but... I mean, sometimes he, the officer, I don't know what happened. He fell into the Megalodon tank. Now about that life insurance policy. Are we covered? Would you like something that is not as awful as that? Yes. Cool. January 10th, 1992. Just diving on in. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, mine is, I mean, it's not great. But it's better. January 10th, 1992, there was a storm in the Pacific that knocked over a freight traveler from China to America that was carrying 28,800 bath toys. Asawi? What? They were yellow ducks, red beavers, green frogs, and blue turtles. These were like rubber duckies made by the first year's company. The shipwrecked or toppled, or, you know, it's gone. And that is that. However, that was like, uh, the end. <laughs> the end. But you drop, you know, 28,000 plus rubber duckies into the ocean. And what's going to happen? They're just going to show up places. They are. So the friendly floaties, as they've been called, began to wash up on the Alaskan coast towards the end of 1992, about 2,000 miles from where they originated. 
After a year, another 400 showed up along the coast of Alaska. And then as things went on, more and more started showing up in more and more places. So the Ocean Surface Currents Simulator known as Oscar, is a computer model created by this guy, Ebsmeyer, and his colleague, Ingram. And it takes data on air pressure and speed and direction of weather systems to map paths of ocean currents. This is a very unknown territory, because while we know a lot about the world, the oceans we know very little about. And it makes sense because they're so massive and so deep and so awful. (laughs) But even surface level, (laughs) there's a lot of places that we don't know much about. So people started tracking these friendly floaties. And using Oscar, they were able to predict where the floaties would arrive. There were some that went back to Japan, some to Alaska. Some made it to the Bering Strait where they were frozen in Arctic ice. But across the Arctic ice or the Bering Strait, they some of them kept going. And there have been some that have shown up in the UK. Wow. Right? Wow. Look at a map and it'll be more impressive. You have the map. You're the only one in studio. This is true. But when people started tracking these, it taught the world a lot about, they're called gyres. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's G-Y-R-E-S. And these are basically where the ocean currents trap, based on the way they flow, they end up trapping debris that's lost in the ocean. And now there are garbage patches that are just chilling in the ocean where everything just kind of shows up. So gyres are large systems of circulating ocean currents like slow-moving whirlpools, and there are five that we know of, the Northern Atlantic, South Atlantic, Northern Pacific, South Pacific, and the Indian Ocean Gyre. Within these, it's just trash, and trash whirlpools of trash. It's weird, right? I don't like it. Yeah. So these friendly floaters, though, have helped them figure out the current paths, and based on the tracking of them, Apparently, beachcombing is like really popular, and there are like whole communities about it. And you can go online and find like community groups, and they all talk about what they found. And people like travel across the United States or into different countries to go look at trash that's washed up on shores. Uh, Yeah, really cool. And I could see myself doing that one day. But they do this, and they've been able to track based on when they arrived and where they're at all these currents and now they've been able to isolate where these garbage patches are or at least the ones in between japan and the united states and it's it's really really cool to see not environmentally cool definitely not but it's become something that people have looked into from all over the world and there was even the the little rubber duckies or friendly floaters made an appearance in the documentary blue planet 2 so you can learn about them there too but the ones that have been picked up some of them have been replaced by buoys with gps tracking devices that help map these paths so these duckies have shown up in the uk and alaska in washington in japan in South America, in Australia. These guys are everywhere in uh, New York. And these are all released from the same yes, place. They're able to know them because of the first year branding on them. Huh. Yeah. It's really cool. Now, the yellow ducks 
and the red beavers are usually whitewashed by the time they're found, but a lot of the frogs and turtles are still the green and the blue, which I thought was really cool. Huh, I wonder why. I don't know. Something with the plastics and the science and this stuff. But it was cool because they took this tragedy that happened. I say tragedy. They they took this, this issue that happened and they can't just, you know, dump thousands of plastic things into the ocean to see what happens. But since this happened, they used it to their advantage to study it and come up with what is uh, going on in the world. So it sucks that these are all out there. But since they're out there, they're figuring out what's going on. There is a term that has been coined because of them called floatsymmetrics, and that is used to understand the movements of flotsams, which are discarded items in the ocean. They've inspired... Flotsam and jetsams? Right. That's exactly what I thought when I first heard it. Flotsam, jetsam, now I've got her, boys. The boss is on a roll. Oh, boy. Um, But there was a book inspired by this called Moby Duck, the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea and of the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, uh, including this author who went in search of them by Donovan Hahn. Interesting. Yes, it's really cool. You should look it up. I plan on reading the book because there was an excerpt from it on one of the websites I found. And it basically started out like, when these started washing up, I thought I'd look into it from the comforts of my home. Little did I know, a few years later, I would end up trompsing around the world, kissing my wife goodbye, and making her put up with me traveling for years in search of rubber duckies. I was like, oh, I like you already. Let's be friends. So... (laughs) Fair enough. Mm -hmm. So Tiffany's new life goal is to go around the world and find rubber duckies. Yeah, I want to be a beachcomber because I can enjoy the beautiful ocean, help clean up the beaches and, you know, be a part of a group. (laughs) Be part of a group. So I see how we stand. Thanks. I mean, you guys are cool and all, but like you've kind of gotten used to my antics. Now I need new people to... uh, throw off i'm happy to take you to the beach and go on a boat and go scuba diving i'm happy to do all of those things with you so that you can comb the beaches i don't want to scuba dive or snorkel but i will gladly go on boats with you um as long as it's not whale watching or anything like that i will gladly like comb the beaches and play up to about my knees maybe my high thigh depending on how clear the water is and lay out and read my high thigh yeah (laughs) So that's my ocean story, which is not nearly as scary as (laughs) y'all's. What can I say? I am a scare artist. (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that. that. On that note, remember, friends, everyone has something that they find odd. Let us tell you why it's not. If you have any questionable topics you'd like us to discuss, you can share them with us on any of our social medias. Links can be found on our website, theladiesestrange.com, or you can email them to us at theladiesestrange at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So if you feel like sharing your deep sea imagery with us, specifically Tiffany, feel free to share them there. Share it on Twitter because I'll definitely see it there. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And if you think we're doing a great job and want to support this show, we appreciate that. Like, subscribe, rate, review. Tell your friends about us. That'd be cool, you know. I'm not allowed to have too many more internet friends, according to Rebecca, but I'd gladly <laughs> yes. challenge that rule. So um, keep it strange, my lovelies. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.